Okay, uh, a very warm welcome um, and uh, uh, a very warm welcome to all of our speakers also. Thank you uh, for uh, coming and joining us today. We are discussing scaling up SME access to finance um, in the Middle East um, and um, we are delighted to uh, host today um, Jihad Asur, who is the director uh, at the fund of the IMF of the Middle East and Central Asia Department. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, Jihad, of course, has been, before uh, his current position, has been the finance minister of Lebanon, um, and he has held uh, various other positions in, um, in business and in, uh, in finance. Um, let me also very warmly welcome Anta Neue, who uh, um, I have to say I want to welcome her back um, and almost say I want to steal her for the next one and a half hour hours because she um, is a Bruegel alumni. Um, she is now an economist at the IMF, um, but she used to be a research assistant here uh, some time ago and um, uh, has also a distinguished career already at the fund uh, and is now um, an economist um, uh, working on, uh, on the Middle East. Last but not least, um, let me welcome our two discussants and, uh, and, and other speakers, Bruno Balvanera, Managing Director of Central Asia, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and Barbara Makito, Head of Country and Financial Sector Analysis at the European Investment Bank. Thank you very much for coming. I don't really have to welcome and introduce Joel Davash, our senior fellow who um, will chair and moderate uh, the discussion. Thank you very much to all of you, and I very much look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Guntram. And let me also welcome all of you, all of you who came here, and especially our, our, our speakers today. Now first, uh, uh, Mr. Azur will give some uh, introductory remarks, and then uh, Anta will present the report. So, Mr. Azur. Thank you very much. Uh, I think I have a mic. Oh. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, and thanks for Bruegel for uh, uh, arranging uh, this presentation. Let me say a few words um, to kickstart the discussion. First is how this idea um, uh, emerged. What is the genesis of this project? In fact, a um, year and a half ago, uh, we had a conference in Marrakesh on um, financial, on inclusive growth. And the project was how to, the region can grow faster and can grow in more inclusive way. And the idea is to move from, I would say, stating what needs to be done is to move to how to implement it in practice. And one of the areas that uh, immediately emerged as an avenue for us to increase the level of growth and to make it inclusive is financial inclusion. And this is because of uh, the lack of inclusion on the financial side in both Middle East and Central Asia countries. When you have 50% of the employment in the private sector in the hand of SMEs, who represent 95% of the companies in both Middle East and Central Asia, and where on average 6% of GDP is only dedicated to them in terms of financing, it's clearly one of the areas that needs more attention. Uh, for a matter of comparison, on average for uh, EMs, the access to finance for SMEs is above 15%. Therefore, it was obviously one of the themes that we needed to focus on. 
What we did is we assembled a group of uh, economists uh, at the fund from the Middle East and Central Asia Department, supported by other economists from other departments, but we wanted to make sure that this is something that is implementable, and therefore we widened the scope of our analysis by involving uh, colleagues from EBRD, from the World Bank, and from IFC. With an idea is to assess how important access to finance to SMEs is for the economy, is it macro-relevant or not, how we can, in fact, increase the level of access to SMEs, what are the key bottlenecks, and how we can mainstream it on the country level. And it's clear that uh, improving access to SMEs uh, would grow the economy on average by one to one and a half percent, and Anta in the presentation will, will show you that. And it's clear it will have an impact on employment. We estimate that more than 15 million to 16 million new job opportunities could be created by improving access to finance. Since then, we widened the work. Uh, we did some additional work on SMEs, especially for Middle East, trying to understand how um, countries can scale up uh, their support to SMEs. Over the last 10 years, we saw a kind of an evolution uh, in terms of the country strategies to support SMEs, moving from, I would say, an approach that is instrument-specific to an approach that is broader, um, uh, where several countries have developed strategies to support SMEs. Where we believe countries should go is to have, I would say, framework approach, because um, the study showed that there are a certain number of macroeconomic measures that are needed in order to scale up and to strengthen support through financial inclusion, but broader to uh, the SMEs. Uh, therefore, we have recently presented a paper on that for the Arab ministers in April in Kuwait. Uh, and we are launching, I would say, the second step of the work we are doing on um, access to finance, focusing on one area that I would say that was not uh, uh, covered enough in, in our first study, which is the demand side. Uh, because there is one element also that needs to be taken into consideration, that demand is weak, i.e. small and medium-sized companies are not very um, well prepared most of the time. Uh, and the demand for additional finance is, uh, is sometime lacking. The second dimension of our work uh, uh, going forward is to deepen, I would say, the non-banking financial uh, access. In the paper, we have a chapter on that, on the other financial um, ways of providing uh, support to SMEs. But going forward, we are going to focus more on that especially on two dimensions, fintech as one area, especially for startups. And the other one is how to help large companies to access to and exit uh, through uh, the financial markets. Therefore, this is an area where uh, we believe um, we could help our member countries, on one hand, improve uh, their growth and create additional jobs. And also, on the other hand, this is also one area where we can strengthen through wide range of policies, not only the access to finance, but also improve their doing business, 
uh, improve productivity and competitiveness in those economies. And it's also an area that one can expand uh, that will allow those countries to create the jobs that they need, especially for, for their youth, and address one of the main issues that they are facing and limiting their ability, in fact, uh, to grow, which is to have more productive sector and then reduce gradually the role of the state as main provider of, of jobs. I will um, stop here. I would like to thank you again for hosting us today. Uh, uh, we have already presented this paper in, in DC and in Almaty a few weeks ago. Uh, we were together uh, at the Astana Forum. And we did it also for the Middle East uh, in uh, uh, a few. Uh, in a few months in the past, both in Cairo and also in uh, Dubai during uh, the World Government Summit. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Narazul, for giving this broad overview um, on the current very low level of financial inclusion of, of SMEs, which also offers, as you say, a huge potential growth and creating jobs and, and more growth to the economy. Now let me, let's turn to, to Anta, who will present some of the details, I believe. Okay. I would rather walk as opposed to sit still in order to present this. First, thank you to all for attending. Thank you to Guntram and Schuld. It's really good to be back. Um, as Jihad said, and I'll try not to repeat some of the things that he already mentioned, the topic of the presentation today is on scaling up SME access to finance with a specific focus on the Middle East and Central Asia region. So the outline of the presentation is as follows. I'll discuss some key salient features about SME and why we decided to focus on SME financial inclusion. I'll talk briefly about the empirical approach that we use in this paper, and I'll then move to some of the main results, namely the macroeconomic benefits and the drivers of SME financial inclusion. I'll also discuss shortly the role that FinTech can play to promote and scale up SME access to finance. And I'll finish with a few concluding remarks. So first, and as Jihad just mentioned, if you look at uh, all around the world, SME represent more than 90% of total registered firm. And that excludes the informal SMEs. In fact, for the MENAP and CCA, if you bulk them together, they represent more than 96% of total registered firm. On the second chart, what you can see is that they also represent half of the total workforce in the private sector. So the first key takeaway is that SMEs are an important part of the ecosystem of private sector all around the world, not just in the MENAP and in the CCA region. Now, given how important they are, we wanted to look at um, the level of access to bank credit that they have. So as you can see here, despite the fact that they represent 96% of total firm, they only receive about 7% of total bank credit in the MENAP and CCA region. And that's compared to about 17% in the Asia and Pacific region. Now, bank credit uh, is a relatively crude measure of financial inclusion. 
So what we did in our paper is that we constructed our own financial inclusion index for SME using principal component analysis and variables that capture access to finance for SME, i.e. what are the percentage of SME that have a bank account or a saving account, as well as measures of usage of finance, i.e. how many of those SMEs are using banks to fund their investment or working capital. What that measure tells you about the MENAP and CCA region is pretty similar to the 7% that I just showed you. If you take these two regions together, they have the lowest level of financial inclusion relative to, let's say, Asia, Europe, and Western Ham. So this is normalized for, from zero to one, with zero being the lowest. Now let me talk a little bit about the empirical approach. Obviously, there are several institutions, some of them sitting right there on this panel, that have worked on issues around financial inclusions and SMEs. What we wanted to do is, in line with our core mandate, which is macroeconomic stability, look at first uh, the potential macroeconomic benefits from scaling up SME financial inclusion, both in terms of economic growth as well as job creation. The second big contribution of our paper was to look at, in a more holistic and comprehensive uh, approach, the, about the drivers of SME access to finance. What do I mean by that? Some papers by the bank, the IB, have argued that bank competition, for example, matters for scaling up access to finance. Others have looked at the role of legal and credit infrastructure in scaling up access to finance. What we do in our paper is that we've looked at a range of variables going from macroeconomic stability to legal and credit infrastructure collateral framework and try to identify the key variables that matter in each and every country. And we did that by using a variety of data. First, macroeconomic data from the IMF, the Financial Access Survey, that has data on bank lending to SME. We also made use of the World Bank Enterprise Survey to construct the SME Financial Inclusion Index, and that's firm-level data. Last but not least, we send out some country questionnaires to authorities in order to gauge SME access to finance in country where that data was not available. So let me talk briefly about the result. So uh, there are papers done by colleagues at the IMF from the Monetary and Capital Market Department that argue that household financial inclusion has a positive impact on growth. There are also papers done by colleagues at the bank that have argued that SME, especially young firm, have a positive impact on employment growth and on job creation. What we wanted to look at in our paper is specifically investigate the linkages between SME financial inclusion and growth, as well as SME financial inclusion and employment growth. And in both cases, what we found it was that the relationship was positive. Here, using firm level data, what we estimated was that by giving better access to finance to SME, you could create up to 16.6 million additional jobs relative to the baseline in the MENAP and CCA region by 2025. Now, let's suppose you take a gross accounting framework. 
you have the employment growth gains that I just mentioned, as well as some positive labor productivity gains that we estimated, we plugged them together and estimated that you could get up to 1% of growth gain in the MENA and CCA region by providing better access to finance. So those are the main key takeaway from the first part of the analysis. What we also looked at was the drivers of SME. What are the measures? What are the policies that you need to put in place so that you could scale up access to finance? And here, what these two pie charts shows you is uh, we try to explain the difference between a best performer, let's say a country that's at the 90th percentile in terms of SME financial inclusion, and the average in MENAP and CCA. And this tells you that there are five main key pillars that explains the difference between the best performer and these two regions. The first one, in line with finding from the literature, is economic development, which we proxy by income per capita, which explain a large share of the difference between those best performer and these two regions. The other four pillars are governance, which we proxy by control of corruption, which also explain part of that difference between the performance in these two regions and the best performer. Financial infrastructure as well plays a key role in scaling up SME access to finance, and here we proxy it by public credit registry coverage. Economic competition, leveling the playing field between SMEs and other firms is also important so that you can scale up SME access to finance. We also, in the paper, found that bank competition also plays a key role in explaining the difference. Last but not least, the business environment, which we proxy by contract enforcement, also play a key role. So those are the five key pillars that explain the difference between the performance in the MENAP and CCA region relative to the best performer. Now let me discuss the role of fintech. So as I've just shown you, uh, credit information, competitions matter for uh, SME access to finance. Well, fintech can play a dual role. It can help enhance traditional SME finance. How? Things such as big data analytics, machine learning, AI, can help reduce the processing fees and provide better credit information on SME. So using technologies such as FinTech can help you address the asymmetrical information on SME. But it can also help promote bank competition. How? Well, there are a few platforms, including some in the region, such as Sukalmal, which is an pla electronic platform in the UAE that allow consumers and SME to compare banking products, credit cards, insurance service, and so on, and then can therefore help promote more competition between banks. But that's not the only role that FinTech can play. It can also play a role by opening new channels for SME finance, such as uh, electronic platform that allows for crowdfunding and peer-to-peer -peer lending. And here, I would guess, one example that some of you could be familiar with is, for example, Alibaba, the Chinese e-commerce platform, which also provide lending to SME, some 800,000 SME, by using its own e-commerce platform. It then uses 
the information that it gets on those 80, 100,000 SME to assess the credit worthiness of those SME and that of new and prospective SME borrowers. Let me now give a few concluding remarks in line with what Jihad has just mentioned. So the topic of access to finance is not new. Policymakers in the region and elsewhere have tried for a couple of years to scale up SME access to finance. And what we argue in the paper is that they've done so by using direct public intervention, such as credit guarantee scheme, setting up as a state-owned bank, SME fund, or interest rate regulation. Now, there is mixed evidence on the effectiveness of those type of instrument. And if you take the example of credit guarantee scheme, they could have unintended consequences, such as weakening credit discipline. More and more in the region, and that's the case in Pakistan, in Jordan, and in Georgia, countries have put together comprehensive national financial inclusion strategy with a focus, focus on SME access to finance, with some of them setting up credit bureau that focus on uh, putting together information on small and medium enterprise, uh, improving the legal and credit infrastructure, insolvency regime, uh, collateral framework. What we argue in our paper is that based on the analysis that I just presented to you, there is a wide range of complex and intertwined factors that matter to scale up SME access to finance. So what we are calling for is more of a holistic approach. If you want to scale up access to finance, you need to focus on a broad range of factors ranging from the role of the public sector and the size of the public sector all the way to the business environment and institutions. And all of those matter in order to be able to unlock safe and sustainable SME access to finance. As Jihad just mentioned, this is just the beginning of ongoing work that we are going to do at the IMF on this topic. And we want to do with, with partners, some of them sitting on this panel, so that we can provide more granular and tailored advice to countries that are trying to scale up SME access to finance. On the analytical agenda, and I know some of the colleagues are going to pick up on that during this panel, there are a couple of things that we also want to do. Uh, document lessons from country experience, what have worked, what are countries doing in, uh, to scale up SME access to finance, and what hasn't worked, what are the do's and the don'ts. Uh, the demand side factor, very important. So, so far, the analysis that I've presented to you focus a lot on the supply side. How do you make sure you prevent or you remove constraints from the banking sector, fintech and capital market uh, for lending to SMEs? But what's also important, and Jihad already mentioned it, is you know, what role does informality, the economic characteristic of a country, play in explaining the low level of SME financial inclusion in certain countries? Last but not least, and in line with our core mandate, we also want to look at the policy recommendation, things such as what is the nexus between financial inclusions of SME and uh, financial stability. As you build up exposures to SME, what are the risks to financial stability? And what type of regulatory and supervision framework do you need to have in place to eliminate those type of risks to financial stability? 
Let me finish by uh, mentioning a toolkit that we are developing right now based on the results of a paper. The toolkit uh, pretty much allows you, based on the analysis that we've done, to assess the state of SME financial inclusion in any country. It will highlight the main drivers of the SME financial inclusion gap. And last but not least, it will allow you to identify the key policy priority to scale up SME access to finance. We are hoping to make this toolkit available to the public within the next months. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Anta, very much for this very informative and, and uh, presentation. And I think I very much enjoyed that you first started with, with the state of affairs, then you know you presented some calculations, identified what are the main pillars between the I mean, best and the worst performers, and then came up with this very wide-ranging um, uh, <clears throat> approach that, that you can't just you know, tackle one particular item, but you, you have to many, many bottlenecks to, to SME access to finance. Now, before asking our two other guests, just let me ask one clarifying question from you. Because you presented a very, I mean, remarkable number. There would be a 1% extra growth from additional uh, SME financial inclusion. I mean, I just wonder if you could highlight what are the basic assumptions for, for that result. Because certainly if you would do that faster, maybe the growth impact can be even larger if you do it slower. So I think a lot of it depends on, on what you assume, what is a kind of reasonable pace uh, of additional SME financial inclusion. So if you could elaborate a little bit the, the background for that calculation, I would very much appreciate it. Okay, so thank you very much, Holt. Uh, so you picked up on one very important uh, element, the pace at which you need to increase SME financial inclusion, and how do you get there? So, um, as I've mentioned, and as you see here, SME financial inclusions in both the MENA and the CCA region are relatively low, right? So, in some of the calculations that we did, we said, suppose you move from being where they are to the average of the sample, uh, that would allow you to build up an additional gains of up to 1% in some cases. But what we also mentioned in the paper is that it's not a one go. You're not going to do it through year. And we actually calculated a path through which you can go from going from 0.2, let's say, to 0.5, which is the average. And it's from between five to 10 years that will allow you to get to that. So that's certainly not something, it's not a 1% that you're gonna get over next year, but it's something that you would do as you slowly but surely increase SME access to finance. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> very, very interesting. Now let's turn to our two other guests and uh, <clears throat> suggest I invite them by alphabetic order in their first name. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so we start with Barbara uh, Marjito, who is the <clears throat> head of country and financial sector analysis at the, the European Investment Bank, but you have also worked for the IMF, so, uh, and before that at the, at the uh, Italian the Treasury. So, <clears throat> Barbara, please. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thanks uh, uh, to Bruegel for organizing this event and for inviting the EIB uh, to join. I would also like to thank uh, the IMF and ANCA for this presentation, and this is a significant report. I would really like to emphasize uh, this. It focuses on crucial issues in this region, and it treats them in a comprehensive and insightful manner. 
putting all, almost all of the pieces of a puzzle. You mentioned that there are some other areas for uh, further work, but I think it's really uh, uh, enlightening. And for sure at the EIB, we share, we share the view that uh, enhancing access to finance for SMEs is crucial to develop a vibrant private sector that can create decent jobs, jobs for young people and for women. That's, that's uh, key to have growth that is well diversified, growth-based, resilient and, and inclusive. And as you highlighted earlier on, this is certainly a need which is felt in this region very acutely. But at the same time, um, the results that you present and the key messages, uh, I think, resonate well beyond the, the Middle East and Central Asia region, particularly uh, the holistic approach that you uh, emphasize. Um, the issues at stake are complex. There are many dimensions. Many of them are interlinked. So the solution is going to be complex. It has to take all of these factors uh, into account. And uh, I think it's also important uh, that as we sit here today, uh, that we uh, emphasize the importance of working together. The IFIs, the European Commission, or stakeholders, uh, it's, it's very important that we join, uh, we join forces. Um, what I would like to present is a little bit some of the results of the work that we have carried out in this, uh, in this field at the, at the EIB looking a little bit more uh, into the demand side of a, of a story. And I would like to emphasize a, a couple of aspects. First of all, the disconnect that exists in the region, particularly in the southern neighborhood, in the MENA region, between bank and enterprises. Mm. And then secondly, the relevance of financial infrastructure and business regulation. And uh, last but not least, uh, this is a work that we have uh, finalized more recently, human uh, capital, entrepreneurial human capital. Some of the, of the uh, research uh, that I will be um, talking about was carried out, in fact, jointly with EBRD and the World Bank. We carried out together uh, an enterprise survey in the MENA region a few years ago. And I think we can proudly also announce that as we speak, we are carrying out a new wave, expanded wave of data collection uh, in the southern neighborhood, in the eastern neighborhood of the EU and in the Western Balkans. And uh, these firm level data are very important and are unique, uh, I think, in, in a sense, because they provide us an insight of what are the challenges that entrepreneurs face on the ground in running their business on a, on a daily basis. So, we hope that the wealth of data that we're going to collect is going to provide material for deeper understanding and, and, and shed more light on, on the questions that we are discussing uh, today. As Jiat mentioned uh, earlier on, that demand for bank loan in this region is, uh, is rather weak. And this is what we find uh, in our report. Uh, the share of firms that apply for bank uh, loans is relatively uh, low compared to other emerging and developing regions in the world. And what we found more uh, striking is also that there is a large share of firms that um, exclude themselves from the formal financial sector. These are enterprises that do without banks. They do not have a bank loan and many of them, especially in Egypt, Yemen, in countries where financial intermediation is really not developed, they do not even have a bank account. 
checking or a savings account, which is very often a prerequisite to get credit. First, you get yourself known to a bank. They can see the ins and outs of your cash flows and then know you. Uh, so I, we found this result quite striking. Also because uh, the behavior of these disconnected firms is similar to credit-constrained firms. They do not invest and they do not grow. And uh, firms that do not grow are not the ones which are going to be supporting job creation and productivity growth. So I think this is uh, a, a really important uh, result to, to bear in mind. And what are the causes of this disconnect? Uh, we looked at, uh, at, a few, uh, uh, at a few and uh, we find that competition has a bearing Collateral regimes has a bearing and the cost of formalization. Uh, collateral regimes are particularly stringent in the southern neighborhood, both in terms of incidence and in terms of collateral ratios. And, uh, and we find uh, with you know, some pretty uh, uh, developed or uh, uh, econometric techniques that uh, firms, and this applies to both young firms and old firms that operate in areas where banks accept movable collaterals are way more likely to engage with the banking sector and to get a credit from, from banks. Uh, it goes without saying that uh, the, the um, challenges imposed by stringent collateral regimes are more uh, important for young firms, the ones that have less uh, fixed access to post as, as collateral. Looking at competition, we find that uh, enterprises which operate in areas and in regions where banks are less competitive are also less likely to become engaged in the financial sector, in the banking sector, and on formalization. Although the firms in our enterprise uh, survey are all formal, we uh, noticed that uh, firms that started operating as informal and formalized at a later stage are also less likely to engage in bank, with banks. Uh, we think that this may be due to the fact that uh, the cost of becoming banked uh, for these firms and becoming more visible to the tax system is perceived as too high. And so if they expect not to get access to credit, they prefer to stay in the semi-formal uh, uh, environment. Uh, Another important factor that has not been uh, talked about uh, uh, so far is, and that we have um, focused on in a more recent uh, piece of research carried out by economists at the EIB, <coughs> is entrepreneurial uh, human capital. Using the same uh, uh, data set of, uh, of, uh, um, from the enterprise survey, we find that entrepreneurs with uh, university education are more likely to engage with the banking system. They're more likely to get a checking or a saving account, which, as I mentioned, is often a prerequisite to uh, get credit. They are less likely to be discouraged from uh, asking for a bank loan, and they are less likely to become credit constrained. In other words, uh, firms that are um, run by well-educated managers understand that the cost of being excluded from the financial sector in terms of foregone growth opportunity is, is very high. So to conclude, uh, the holistic approach, we think it's extremely important, ranging from uh, 
macroeconomic factors, uh, fiscal discipline and reduction of crowding out, which is an important element you point to. Business regulation, I think it has a role to play in promoting the development of a diverse financial sector as opposed to bank-centric, as we see uh, in this region. Innovative financial infrastructure, we mentioned movable collateral registry. Anka mentioned earlier on the potential of extracting information from fintechs and big data to build a credit history. And uh, last but not least, uh, investment in entrepreneurial human capital. Now, uh, connectedly, I think what we do as IFIs when we invest in these countries and what we should be doing more and more is capacity building at the level of the intermediary so that they can cater, understand what is needed by SME, how you assess the risks, how you monitor, and also at the level of the SME to become more transparent, better at uh, putting forward their business plan. And in this respect, just allow me to, to uh, mention a program that we are actually developing currently with the, with the fund in a capacity development. We are working on a joint online course on financial inclusion. And uh, unlike the uh, traditional uh, IMF capacity building, because the, this module will be online, it will be accessible to private sector, to financial intermediaries and enterprises. So we hope that this will help, you know, it's a little drop in a big, uh, uh, in a big ocean, but still we think uh, it's important. I think I will, for the time being, stop here and then I'm happy to take questions. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Barbara, for this, this very interesting presentation, uh, especially the, the research you highlighted, I think, brings a very important point. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I was really <clears throat> impressed by that you discussed these three major causes, that low competition, very stringent competition re uh, collateral regime and lack of sufficient entrepreneurial human capital now, my follow-up question if i can if i can make that is, is what are the deeper reasons behind these key factors maybe competition and, and human capitalism longer lasting but for example for for the collateral regime is it due to i mean very strict national regulation uh, or the, the financial institutions themselves decide that they want to be super tough uh, because maybe there is not enough competition between them and they, that's why they apply so strong, so stringent collateral requirements. Well, I think the answer is, is uh, it's fairly simple. As, uh, as Anka mentioned before, uh, collateral is a way of removing or circumventing the uh, information asymmetries uh, when banks do not have much or do not know very well, and they don't have a track record as to the credit worthiness of their client, collateral is a good insurance. Of course, uh, the, the, I mentioned before the importance, for instance, of movable collateral. Movable assets, mm. equipments, receivables are the bulk of the assets of uh, enterprises in the developing world. So when they can use, as opposed to land or other fixed assets, to, uh, to when they're allowed to be posted as collateral, of course, this has uh, a, an important uh, impact. So I think, uh, of course, for banks, it's important to have some security when they land. It's more a matter of understanding how can these requirements be more attuned to the needs of the SMEs, especially the young firms who 
most likely have not accumulated a lot of, if, of fixed assets. Uh, and so I think this is uh, uh, an, important, uh, an important factor. Thank you very much. <clears throat> and now we turn to Bruno Valvarena, who is manage, manage, Managing Director of Central Asia, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And you have been there since 1996. So 23 years, three years now, you started there and had many different positions. So you must have a very, very deep knowledge of, of different uh, countries of, of the region. So, Thank you. No. Thank you very much, Dolt. Uh, Thank you very much to, to Bruegel for uh, inviting uh, also EBRD to participate in a, in a very topical uh, conference today. Thank you to, to Yihad and to Anta for giving the frame. Um, it's, it's, it's about SMEs, but I think the big topic is about inclusion. And inclusion was really the big topic that Madame Lagarde presented in Kazakhstan during the Astana Economic Forum. I think this is really very topical for Southeastern Mediterranean, for, for Jordan, for Central Asia. I'm coming from Mexico, and the issue of immigration has been lately also on the news. is also very important topical. So um, thank you. Yes, I've been in EBRD 23 years in different positions. Uh, I took over the responsibility of Central Asia in January. Just before that, for six years, I was running operations in Caucasus, Moldova, and Belarus. So today, I will be able to share what we have been doing, both in, in the Caucasus, in Central Asia, and also with the input from my colleagues in our new area that we call Southeastern Mediterranean, um, where we have been working for the last five, seven years. Uh, first of all, uh, the, the figures are, talk for themselves. SMEs are very important in terms of employment, in terms of contribution to GDP, in terms of firms, and of course there's very big potential. Uh, the challenges are numerous. One hand is access to finance, but it's also about the vulnerability to the macroeconomic cycles that the SMEs are probably more vulnerable than the others. The low access to technologies, the low access to skills, uh, the low access to financial literacy and to relatively little leverage they have to enhance business climate in their own country. So the challenges are pretty, pretty wide. Uh, DBRD takes SME as a, one of our very important four or five very strategic initiatives and we have been working on this area because of its importance. And we have um, created a five-pillar approach for SMEs, particularly for the countries that I'm going to describe, which is Semed, Caucasus, and Central Asia, which is basically from Morocco to Mongolia, if you want. And the five pillars that we have is number one, and probably the first one that has more impact is to work through uh, banks, so we have been working with close to 100 banks through this region, and we have uh, reached through them hundreds of thousands of SMEs on a yearly basis. We don't know how many because it's very difficult to count, but this is really a huge uh, focus. And only 2018, we invested about 550 million euros, which is only in this pillar, is about 20% of what we did in the region. So it's already beating the 7% that you were talking about. Even if 
in the big financing that EBRD is doing in the region, we have very large infrastructure projects. So it's very, really very relevant to the, to the region. We have a very big focus. And we do that not only lending to the banks and asking the banks to lend to SMEs, but also through some uh, enhancement. Some of them we, we give resharing, first loss cover. Sometimes we want to reach uh, niches like women in business, like young, like entrepreneurs, where we give a little bit of an additional incentive that normally is always coming from the donors. And here the European Commission is, of course, the largest donor of all the activities we do in this, in this region. The second pillar, which we have started three, five years ago, and is a big success, particularly in Georgia, where I was until recently, is what we call the risk-sharing facility. Is basically the banks work with small uh, with their clients, but they can turn to us and we will take 50% normally of the risk, funded or unfunded. And this helps them because it gives the incentive to have the full relationship with the client, taking only 50% of the risk in the books, and decreasing the capital. Uh, uh, the capital requirement that they have with the central bank. So there's a capital relief because we are a triple A. We are not the same risk as the SME. So they don't have that much requirements. And through that, uh, which is not only for SMEs, it's also for medium and large uh, transactions. Only in the SME sector, we did 13, 15 last year for about 20 million. It's not a big amount, but it's also a contribution to that. Now, a benefit of this tool is not only that we help to reach the SMEs, but we have technical assistance to what we call the partner bank. So we help them to enhance the capabilities to analyze the risk, to process the loan, and to bring to them a little bit more of our know-how on how to do this. The third, uh, <clears throat> the third area which is very niche is that from time to time, we work also directly with some SMEs. SMEs that have not been able to work with other banks for different reasons and that we think are going to be real winners. Now, uh, this, what we call the pillar three, has been uh, subject to, I would say, more losses than our average portfolio. Our average portfolio in EBRD, we have about three to 5% NPLs. In this program that I'm telling you, the average is 12%, and in some countries, like Azerbaijan and Tajikistan, is close to 25, 30%. And it's not only probably because of the companies itself, but it's also because of the legal environment and how you can enforce your security. But it's very important because this also is helping us probably to have some policy dialogue on improving the legal system of the country because we are practitioners in the ground of the country. So this is the third pillar. The fourth pillar is something we have been doing for years. It's extremely successful. Is our technical assistance that we give to SMEs. Uh, in, in each of the, con we, uh, we are the only IFI that does not have only one office in each country. Actually, some IFIs cannot have 
one office in each country. By the way, we welcome IMF that you are exploring where to set your office for the Caucasus and, and Central Asia, and you are advancing into that. We all welcome this idea that you have. Uh, we have offices in all our countries. In some countries, like Kazakhstan, we have an office in Almaty, another one in Nur Sultan. The same would apply in Turkey, in Ankara, in Istanbul. But what we have is that we also have satellite offices, which is two people offices in smaller uh, cities. They are exclusively dedicated to work with SMEs. First, to try to identify what kind of technical assistance we can give to them, normally in computing, in ISO, in marketing, in internet, in, um, in accounting, but also more and more to try to bridge the gap to make them access to finance through the local banks. In the case of Kazakhstan, for example, we have the two big offices and five more. In the case of Uzbekistan, where we have resumed our activities, as you know, and we are in full wind uh, working uh, very well in, in Uzbekistan, we have our main office in Tashkent, and we will open one in Andijan in a couple of months, and next year we're opening two more offices for SMEs. So this is the work we do to provide technical assistance to the companies uh, over there. And the fifth pillar is a little bit more wider, is a bit more about business environment. And we have created uh, what we have called Investors Council in a number of countries, where funded by us or funded by other donors, we create a platform that is a platform of discussion between the private sector and the public sector. And we want to bring the voice of the SMEs there, to precisely to try to improve the environment where they are working. So, um, we also have, as I said, specific programs that I would like to touch briefly on. One of them is a very successful women in business, particularly for the SEMED region. And what we see is that women who are leading companies, who, who either own companies or are the CEO or at the CFO position, uh, normally have less access to finance. Why? Because sometimes they have less security to offer to the bank, sometimes because they are not as well respected by the banking community, but also sometimes because they don't feel empowered. So we are also working a lot to empower women in business to fight for the rights and, to, and to, to go and to have access to finance. And we have worked with 50,000 uh, uh, women-led uh, companies over time. Uh, we do that in Egypt, Morocco, Tunisia, in the whole of Central Asia. It's very successful and very well recognized. Another area of inclusion that we have been focusing lately is youth entre entrepreneurship. That is very important, particularly in Semet, particularly in Central Asia, where you have, in the pyramid of demographics, you have a very big base of young people who are part of a new generation, the generation of the mobile, the generation of the new ideas. And in that, we have been also focusing in helping them to access finance, but also to identify few of them that we want to help them to continue growing, to try to also recruit the best uh, people that they can have and to enhance a little bit their possibilities for the future. In Egypt and in Jordan, we have, for example, a, a program that we started a couple, one year ago. It's called the Star Venture Program, where we are trying to accelerate their growth. It's not for everybody. It's for few of them that we have been selecting. 
So uh, another area where I think EBRD has um, earned its place to be recognized as leader is in local currency. Local currency financing in each of the countries is extremely important to avoid the risks that the companies, in particular the SMEs, cannot bear, which is the macroeconomic risk. And we have been leading on that. We have been accessing, trying to find different ways to develop, one, the local capital markets, but also to try to bring new instruments to place uh, for example, Lattice, we have been play, placing Lattice in, in London, or we have been also placing uh, Tengues more lately in, in London. So uh, another area that we also feel very proud is what we have called the Blue Ribbon Company. So we aim at having about 150 SMEs. So far we have identified 46 that we call our club members in our countries of operation. These are companies that we feel that they have a special region, uh, reason to be a winners in the future. So we agree with them that they will be part of this program that we call Blue Ribbon that will give them access to technical assistance, to finance, and is a program over two to five years. So we are really partnering with these companies to make sure that they become a success and uh, uh, probably also a model for others to, to follow. Other area that I think is important to mention in which EBRD is a leader is about uh, green economy and, and energy efficiency. We have a specific uh, target that uh, we started with 25% that our investments need to be green. Now our target is 40%. And this is really very challenging to meet, but is also very much in line with what we feel as an as an IFI we need to be, to be doing. Let me conclude by, by saying what I already said, but to emphasize the importance of the donors. It is thanks to the donors, and I want to repeat, uh, thanks in particular to the European Commission that puts at our disposal big amount of funds that we can offer first risk uh, cover, that we can go beyond in, in local finance because are covering our risk, because it's also covering uh, uh, risk sharing of portfolio. We wouldn't be, and, and, and of course, very much so, on this technical assistance, all these offices that we have, all these people that are dedicated to provide technical assistance, they're all paid by the donors. And as I said, mainly the European Union. So being in Brussels, I cannot but just thank you for the support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bruno, for, for highlighting the, the major challenges and the five main pillars and many, many other approaches. Let me also have a, a quick follow-up question to you. You said that your pillar three is directly dealing with SMEs. Now, I would have two questions. I wonder that how you can manage that. I mean, you said that you have offices, sometimes satellite offices with few people, but I mean, dealing with SMEs, I think, requires you know, a lot of human work, I mean, unless you have a hyper fintech technologies and <laughs> you do almost everything digitally. So how can you a little bit manage that? How many SMEs can you reach? But also coming back to the discussion with Barbara on, on the collateral requirements, do you apply similar collateral, similar string collateral as local banks, or you are a bit more open to also movable collateral and so on? Thank you. Yes, I think, uh, first of all, uh, this pillar three is a window 
that uh, has received a number, of, a number of questions, all in line to what you have said. Is it profitable? How can you manage? Is labor intensive? Is high risk? The reality is that we are not making money out of this window. And it's okay. It's relatively small, because last year we did about 20 million compared to uh, we, we invested last year 10 billion, so it's 0.02% or 0.2% uh, that we know is kind of loss-making. And it's loss-making because it's very intense in labor, and it's EBRD labor, which is probably even more expensive than the local labor. And it's expensive also because of the high rate of NPLs. Having said that, we think and we believe that we need to continue doing, despite the questioning, because it is really the way to sense the reality of the market. And as I said, we have identified that in countries like Azerbaijan and Tajikistan, a big, um, a big reason that we have these big NPLs is not because the borrowers are bad, but it's because the legal system does not allow us to enforce our securities. Uh, in terms of collateral, yes, we normally take collateral. It's, uh, it's not a collateral-based loan as opposed to banks, because normally banks, what they would say is, okay, this is your business, not important, tell me how much is the security, and I put a ratio and I give you the loan. What we do is we do the analysis, and we say, okay, we can give you 150,000, and we want 200,000 security. So we, 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 our way of thinking is different than the banks, even though the result is, is more or less the, the same. Um, so I think it is very narrow. It is only for, and, and also, we want to keep it very narrow, because keep in mind that in all the countries where we work, we have been developing the local banks. And the local banks are the first one to complain when we were directly with clients. So we cannot be self-destroying what we have created. But we keep it for very niche reasons where there is a, a, an extra reason why they have not been able to raise, because maybe they are at high risk, or maybe because of the area, maybe because of the years of, of experience. I don't know. But there always needs to be a reason why we make the exception. Very, very interesting. <laughs> now, Jihad, back to you. So it seems that everybody seems to agree that a holistic approach is needed. You have to tackle many, many different areas. But you have to start from somewhere, or at least have some priorities to where to start with. Uh, and how would you set the priorities for, let's say, local authorities? How to, so what, what should be, let's say, the first three or five top priority to start with when they want to uh, improve financial uh, inclusion of SMEs? Look, I think um, what has been said clearly shows that um, connectivity is very important. We're talking, for example, about SMEs but we are ignoring that it goes, it goes from small company to company that have uh, more than 100 or 200 uh, employees or even 500 employees. Therefore, we're talking about a, um, uh, a wide range of issues that are different from one category to another. And therefore, it's very important to understand the specificity of each of the segment of the SMEs. What is needed for a small startup is different from is needed for a large company. This is one. Second, it's, it's the journey that matters. 
you are growing a company that starts with an idea and hopefully reaches the capital markets. And therefore, if you don't have this journey approach, you will have discontinuity, and this is where you lose a lot of economic value. Three, it's not only credit. Uh, especially now, you have diversity of sources of funding, and it's very important to make sure that you create synergy among them. And this is something that also policy can affect. For demand is lacking and for reasons, and supply is lacking for reasons. Demand is lacking for reasons because sometimes you have doing business framework that is not conducive for companies to be formal. For example, at startup level, it's very costly to uh, register, to do all what you need in order to get access to finance. And banks, in their way of working, they're not fit in terms of the way they process credits to help uh, small companies to get in. When you grow, uh, the relationship with taxes bring many companies not to be fully transparent. And therefore, this is also where policies are, are important. Therefore, it's very important to understand that policies affect in something that maybe in appearance appear simple. You're in a region where banks are well capitalized, they are well managed, um, you have a vibrant uh, private sector, very much entrepreneurial, and yet it's not matching. Therefore, I think complexity is an important dimension that one has to take into consideration. Connectivity between the growth cycle, as well as also between instruments, banking instruments and non banking instruments, uh, VCs and PEs, they are not very active in the region yet. They need to be uh, strengthened. Capital markets are not playing their role, especially for the segment of medium-sized companies. It needs also some reforms on that dimension. Another dimension that uh, uh, the, the study alluded at, and this is an area where we are going to focus more in the future, is technology. Technology is also something that we need to take into consideration, given the fact technology, not only fintech, but technology and the way we operate, it's going to be dominant. Take the Middle East countries, MENA, the level of mobile penetration exceeds 90%. The level of utilization of e-payment does not exceed 4 to 5% of transactions. The economy is shifting in terms of value chain toward more uh, technology-based trade. And therefore, you need also to increase financial inclusion. And this is also one dimension of our future work, is how to use technology as a way to expand in the inclusion. Inclusion of companies and people. Uh, we did not mention the fact that part of the gap between rural and urban is because of access to finance. The gap between women and men is because of access to finance. And the gap between those who are displaced or refugees and the others is also the solution could be through access to finance. Therefore, I think it's a fascinating uh, area of work. And technology is one dimension that we need to focus on, especially in a region where two-thirds of the population is below 30. And uh, this is a blessing and a curse. A blessing because you can grow the economy fast occurs currently because of the level of unemployment that exceeds 25 to 30 percent. 
The last dimension that is also very important is everything is macro and everything is micro at the same time. Uh, policies are currently, you know, because of the dominant size of the state, both as the state and as state-owned entities, is crowding out. 30% of the lending is going to state and sub-state entities, which is a double of other SMEs. If you don't reduce the crowding out, it's very difficult for banks to be uh, interested to go beyond uh, what is easy and secure in terms of activities. If you don't address the issue of uh, informality, you are not going to be able to grow the size of the entrance to, um, uh, to, to the lending business. If you're not going to simplify the procedures, you're not going to be able to make it, I would say, economically uh, attractive. If you don't move from piloting to scaling, all what we are seeing here is piloting, because those are few institutions who are operating. We need to scale, i.e. the local banks of those companies need to come into play and replicate what is being done by EBRD, by EIB, by others, uh, by IFC, in order to mainstream it. Therefore, from piloting to scaling, this is also going to be very important, and this uh, affects uh, at the micro level. Last but not the least, the traditional approach is to find a partial solution to a large problem, is to create an instrument or to create an SME banks. Recently, we had discussed this with the governors of Central Bank of both MENA and Central Asia, and it was striking. One of the issues that many bank central banks are coming up with is why don't we create an SME bank, which goes against what should be done. And therefore, this is also something that is, is, is very important to understand sometimes policies could divert uh, and create, uh, I would say, uh, a distortion in the market. Therefore, I think uh, it's a fascinating topic that um, uh, it, uh, at the heart of what we are trying to achieve, higher level of growth, growth that is job-rich, and growth that allows those who are not included to find a way to access uh, <clears throat> both access the markets uh, and also access through finance, uh, the ability to exist and to grow. Thank you. Thank you very much for these thoughts. Let me also have a follow-up question to you, <coughs> namely ask the possible role of foreign banks. If you look at, for example, Central Eastern Europe, what we saw is that after the transition, basically foreign banks rush these countries. Now, some for the, those that are currently the member of the EU, most likely EU integration, single market, I mean, the strong EU legal framework played a strong role why there was such an interest. But also, many foreign banks also went to Ukraine or, or Russia, which arguably have much, much weaker legal systems. So I wonder what you see What's, I believe in, in, in your region, uh, uh, foreign bank penetration is very, very low. So what's, what's the reason for that? And is there a way to, to help? Because if foreign banks would, would come there, establish branches or subsidiaries there, they could create also the competition that, that Barbara mentioned, at least at the banking system level. They might have a different approach to, to, to collateral or, or, or lending, as also Bruno mentioned in the, the way the EBRD does. So what, what role you see problems for attracting uh, foreign banks to the region? Look, the, I think here it's very important not to generalize because markets are different. Egypt is different from Jordan, and Georgia is different from Kazakhstan. 
there are markets where historically banking system were closed, and therefore uh, foreign banks were able, in fact, to uh, create uh, what is needed uh, for financial infrastructure. In other countries, you have already uh, a banking system that is very active. Georgia, you have few banks that are very active, listed in the London stock market. Therefore, it's, I think it's very important to avoid going into generalization. Uh, you have different type of foreign bank interventions in those markets. Usually, foreign banks tend to go corporate and large clients where um, you have some, some needs at, I would say, the low end of the curve, which is at the uh, MS, at the micro small companies, where you need to have, uh, or through technology, access to a wide range of customers, or to have large uh, bank penetration in the market. However, I think where foreign banks can play an important role is especially now where you have some issues with what we call a correspondent banking relationship that is challenging for many of the countries of the region. Foreign banks can offer, A, the innovation dimension, scalability, and the ability to uh, accompany uh, medium to large companies to grow faster. Uh, Bruno was mentioning some of the initiatives that they are doing, which I think it's very important to have those kind of initiatives that, I would say, will allow others to, to copy, uh, both local banks as well as also international uh, or, or, or foreign banks. The issue of capital structure is maybe one of the reasons why recently uh, foreign banks are not very much uh, excited to go because um, you know, going to those markets with their level of rating, with the capital requirements, uh, may not help. But I think, uh, going back, the role of institutions like EIB, EBRD, IFC, and others, and the EU, is an important to be a pioneer and catalyst. Pioneer in opening up some area of activities that don't exist in the market, and catalyst because in some of the cases, they syndicate with, uh, uh, private banks, with, I would say, private local and, and foreign banks, uh, and grow the size uh, of the market. And also, I think it's important because they give visibility to the markets. And this is where I think the role of um, regional and international institutions is very important. For us at the fund, it's also very important to highlight and shed the light on the importance of um, integrated policy framework for that on the importance of this issue at the macro level, and also to show the uh, policymakers how their policies affect, and sometimes negatively, uh, the growth of their economies. Uh, and this is uh, where we see, in fact, a lot of complementarity between the work that uh, various institutions do, and also this is where we feel that there are new area of uh, uh, additional work, especially when we put those countries into a broader perspective, when we look at uh, how they rank uh, internationally on the doing business, on the governance, you see that there are co communalities. And uh, those communalities are showing that uh, effort needs to be put in order for those countries to create more jobs and to grow faster, which is, in fact, not only relevant for uh, uh, MENA countries, but also for Central Asian countries. We uh, uh, 
We issued a study recently on inclusion, inclusive growth in Central Asia. And you see that for decades we thought that this part of the world, uh, the level of social protection and inclusion is, is well functioning. And we see that there are some gaps and those gaps need to be addressed. Therefore, I think uh, integrating um, uh, the role of institutions, recognizing the complexity, and not only the, I would say, the technical dimension of this issue is important to succeed. Thanks very much. As I see, Bruno would like to... Thank you. Uh, of course, I, I agree with what has said. Let me probably bring a, few, few, a bit of a different angle. One, I would say that penetration of banking system in the countries we're talking about this is well below European standards. So we're already talking about in countries, even like Kazakhstan, uh, uh, total banking assets to GDP is about 50%. So this is well below European penetration and in other countries even, even less. Uh, second, and you had mentioned, I think the time when the well-known European banks like Bank Austria, RZB, Deutsche Bank, Societe Generale were looking for acquisitions is not anymore a la mode and this is probably the result of the financial crisis and the higher requirements of capital because of, uh, of the risks that uh, were identified after the crisis. And if you, and if you combine high uh, capital requirements with difficult business environment, uh, it makes the acquisition less appealing as they were 20 years ago when we saw this wave of banks coming to the region. Uh, nothing new of what Dijir has said, but I think one angle that I would like to, to mention is that when we talk about foreign banks, we're not talking about only the European, is the intra-regional banks. And this is really where we are seeing some interesting development. You, you mentioned uh, Georgia has two banks, very well known, and TBC is uh, in, in Azerbaijan, in uh, very good, uh, they have a bank, it's not the top one, but it's there and Bank of Georgia has one in Belarus. Uh, it's not secret, it's public that TBC is looking for a license in Uzbekistan. We also know that uh, Pasha Bank, which is a, a bank we, with whom we cannot work because of some reason, but it's a very successful and is a very innovative and high-tech, the same as TBC, is in, uh, in Georgia and is competing. Actually, uh, it, it, coming back to TBC, to Uzbekistan, one of the concerns they would have in Uzbekistan is that it's such an efficient and such a technology bank that they are going to penetrate the market very quickly. So there is a little bit of resistance. And you will also have uh, Halik Bank that for also for some similar reasons in Kazakhstan we cannot work with, but they have subsidiaries through the region. And finally, I think the big success has been the Turkish banks, who have been really much more dedicated actually their banks that they go to the region are SME-dedicated banks. It's not the corporate Societe Generale or even Citibank. They go after the big clients. But this is really where they bring a value added for the SMEs, the Turkish banks. Very inter interesting. Thank you very much. Now let me open the floor for, for questions and, and comments. So please indicate if you would like to ask a question or comment. Briefly introduce yourself and uh, so your question. I think a uh, uh, hand over there, Matilda. Thank you. Good afternoon. Eduardo Como from uh, the European Commission. 
thanks a lot for the presentation of the study. Indeed, the good studies, good analysis, and shared analysis are key for uh, evidence-based policy making, and this is something that we very much welcomed. On the topic of financial inclusion, uh, at the Commission, we are very much focused on this. We have also the initiative for financial inclusion, and we very much share, in a way, the analysis which has been made. On the role of banks, I want just to remember, I know that we don't only talk about banks, but I come from a country, from southern Italy, where many SMEs are already overbanked, have many banks serving them, and we are still very much lagging behind. Bank is not the solution, but definitely can contribute, especially if we can also enhance the lending in local currency. This is something which is definitely essential for the, for the region. Um, uh, one point I wanted to make about the holistic approach you are rightly suggesting, I think that there are two critical conditions to make it feasible and successful. One is the sequencing, and you were asking what first. And the other is, is, I think, a coordinated approach. We can, any one of us can do uh, everything you suggest to do alone. We need to work uh, in, uh, in a coordinated way, uh, and we need to, to share the burden, to, to, to divide the work, uh, the, the work among ourselves. And this is something we are trying to do more and more now with uh, the, an improved uh, uh, coordination among IFIs together with the, the EU. Uh, an example of it is the uh, joint high-level mission we are conducting to Amman next week, where EBRD will be presented by Pierre Helbron, EIB from Flavia Palanza, IMF from Martin Cerisola. And, uh, uh, we are trying, indeed, to promote a coordinated approach, possibly trying to come up with agreed matrices of reforms on which we can try to pick the elements on which we can, each of us, work. What we should try to do, and this is something we do sometimes, is to do the same things, to pick the winners, we're talking about the banks, and leaving behind the others. Uh, the, the, this division of labor, this coordinated approach, I think is really essential and that this is something on which we are making progress and that we are starting getting results to a certain extent because the coordination is improving. Uh, Tunisia is definitely one of the countries in which we are doing much better in that, in that respect. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Over there. Thank you. Um, my name is Stefan Pfalzer. I'm with the Austrian Economic Chamber. I wanted to ask um, whether you could give some information on how or whether um, gender inequality in the access, well, in the area of um, inheritance law in the MENA region um, affects the access to credit um, of SMEs, particularly led by uh, women in the region. Thank you. Thank you. The lady here. Thank you. Thanks for all presentation. My name is Alessandra Libra. I work in the European Commission, DigiDefco and International Cooperation. Um, I actually coordinate a program called Switch Asia that works on sustainable consumption and production, 24 countries in Asia, Central Asia included. 
we also have a kind of twin program also in the Mediterranean. Um, I'm glad that I heard finally also green economy somehow in speeches because I was a little bit afraid at a certain point. Uh, my question would be how eventually green or the greening aspects of industry ever come to your studies or uh, once trying to see also how finance, access to finance could be linked into greening manufacturing. The other questions would be uh, on sectors. Uh, in several presentations you mentioned sectors, but I was wondering, do you know a bit more? Which sectors are like uh, more easy, where access to finance is easier or not according to your studies? Uh, so where there's more opportunities or more obstacles? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, maybe I, I give back the... Oh, no, no, time is running, so I, we have the last two questions, and then I give back the, the floor to the, to the speakers. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Torni Kim Galbishvili, I'm representing Mission of Georgia. First of all, I would like to thank all of you for very interesting presentations. In case of Georgia, of course, I know, I have information what kind of important job your organizations are undertaking through European Union as well as other donor organizations terms of various infrastructural projects, etc. But um, on this stage, I would like to draw your kind attention to the fact that, as you have mentioned, mainly you are working with already established financial institutions in these countries. These are your main partners. However, our main problems still um, are considered to be jobs creation, new jobs creation, and um, you have mentioned the access to the finance. So basically we are saying that, you know, there is a lack of access to the finance by SMEs and, uh, and we, of course, all your organizations as well as the governments would like to see more uh, new entrepreneurs to be born in these countries, basically. So I have just a very quick question. What What is your ideas of your organizations as well as of, of yours since you have such a huge experience in terms of working with startups, with those companies, with some young uh, um, entrepreneurs which are not well established, which you know do not have any access to the finances, uh, financial institutions like banks. Basically, I would like to hear more about this point from your side. Thank you. Thank you very much, gentlemen in, in the front. Oh, uh, Hello, so my name is Mohamed Dwahish, I'm from the Egyptian Embassy in Brussels and also I am part of the Ministry of Trade and Industry in Egypt. Um, so, uh, I mean, on the issue of access to finance, from our side, the, the, there is a very strong supply push. So the government is pushing, uh, providing the funding at relatively uh, more uh, acceptable levels. And uh, so, for example, 5% for the SME sector compared to 15 to 20% for the commercial sector. Uh, and they are also pushing the banks to maintain a certain level, a certain minimum level of their portfolios in SME finance. But the question is, uh, and despite that, the money is not filtering through. And it seems to me that, you know, maybe there's two channels. One is the formal channel through the banks, but then my question is, what about the other channels? Are there other sort of vehicles that can be used to deliver this sort of finance that are better equipped to, the, to deal with the risks that, that, uh, that were mentioned earlier? Um, and, and, and when I say tools, I, I mean about more structured tools rather than the P2P sort of electronic tools which are still 
uh, in their infancy and where the possible uh, financial regulation scheme is not well developed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So there are a couple of questions coming from various other channels, startups, green growth sectors, gender inequality, inheritance laws, holistic approach, what, what conditions are, are there. So I would give back the floor to all four of you. Uh, we have only three minutes left. We typically like to finish on time. Maybe we can go slightly over, but maybe if I could ask each of you to one or two minutes and just on a few key issues, also leaving uh, some other topics to, to the others. So maybe we start. Yes, maybe I can start very quickly on, on, the, on the questions uh, around uh, banks and non-banks and what, uh, what do we do. Of course, uh, uh, for instance, for an institution like the EIB, reaching out directly to SMEs would be extremely uh, complex from an operational point of view. So uh, the entry point into the financial sector of a country is the banking industry. Uh, but we try to uh, diversify, not to just work with uh, the bigger banks, also to go for second-tier banks. Of course, they need to have some sound financials for us to, to be working with. And when it comes to the smaller enterprises, the micro or the startups that you were mentioning, again, we don't um, uh, finance them directly, but through vehicles. So we have private equity uh, investments, uh, that uh, social impact funds that uh, are based in the country who have a, a knowledge of the country. And very often, going back to the point uh, I made earlier on, on uh, capacity, uh, private equity means that the knowledge of the managers is transferred to, to the enterprises. So we think this is very important and microfinance. This is another area that we haven't, uh, we haven't touched upon. We have microfinance credit line targeting uh, the very small enterprises, sometimes through banks, sometimes to uh, microfinance institutions or vehicles. Uh, so we are trying to uh, to diversify uh, in the, in the eastern neighborhood again uh, jointly with uh, uh, donors funding provided by by the commission we have put in place uh, a guarantee scheme portfolio guarantee schemes which is proving quite uh, quite successful and uh, a quick point on gender bruno mentioned earlier on that that uh, smes uh, ran or led by women tend to to have um, more difficulties in accessing uh, credit and uh, and I would tend to agree that's why some of our credit lines are specifically uh, targeting um, uh, women-led SMEs and at the EIB we have uh, unlike other IFIs this is uh, we have what we call the allocations approach. We need to know where the money goes. So when a bank on lands to, uh, to an SME, we, need, we collect information, which is also, for research purposes, uh, very interesting. But also, if we have a credit line that uh, is tied to or aims at targeting women, 30% of the SMEs have to be women-led, we can, we can uh, track. It's not easy, but, uh, and it's very laborious, uh, but we're trying uh, to do that. And from uh, an analytical point of view, uh, we're looking into the issue from a uh, theoretical point of view in a new run of enterprise 
survey that I was mentioning. So there will be some questions uh, related to gender and we will try to understand how this affects uh, um, uh, access to finance uh, from the SME side. Without uh, picking up on all the topics, first, thank you for acknowledging green. It's something we feel very proud, we feel very committed, and it's really in, in our mind. We'll not talk about that. I will talk about what our Egyptian friend uh, raised, which is the government programs, and they are not filtering. Um, in, in, in EBRD, we, we do not believe that subsidies in the long term are going to create competitiveness. And therefore, in principle, we do not support the idea of having subsidized interest rates forever, even to certain segments, because you do not create efficiencies. And we are seeing what I think is a successful program that was in Georgia, that they had a subsidy of interest rate for the first two years of operation, and then they let the company to go to market rates. I think this is very good. Or what we are seeing in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, which is big funds, in Kazakhstan from the government and in Kyrgyzstan from the Russians, from the, the Russian Kyrgyz fund, that they are really destroying the market and they are not creating competitiveness. We believe in competition so that you should offer to many players and then you need to let the final user to let the intermediary to compete to have the business. And we believe in having a temporary subsidy, but not forever, not to distort the market. Let me try to go under one minute so Jihad has more time on behalf of the IMF. I'll pick up on two points. One on uh, a comment uh, towards what you just said about coordinating approach. I think it's key and important from the IFIs, but also from the governments. Very often you also have several players that are trying to do the same and address the SME access to finance. It's important to figure out who should be taking care of what at the institutional level from the government side and coordinate approach so that you have more effective results. Second, on gender inequality, and this is a nice plug to a study that uh, we've done on the GCC particularly. So some of the things on access to finance for gender, there are three issues that we found to be important in explaining the lack of access to finance for women in the GCC. One of them being obviously the low level of female labor for participation, whereas bank often ask for salary assignments so that you could open a bank. Second is also we found that there is a lower level of financial literacy among women than men, which also explain their disconnection from the bank. Last but not least, for women in remote area, the lack of connection, physical connection to banks also explain their lack of access to finance. So things that Ji had mentioned, such as making better use of mobile banking, are actually a promising feature so that you can overcome some of those barriers. Thank you. Thank you. And Jihad? Look, a few things. I think the questions are very relevant. Um, there's one dimension that we did not discuss enough, which is long-term savings. Uh, it's very important in order to deepen the markets and allow for uh, uh, long-term financing or at least medium-term financing. This is an area that is needed. This is also an area that will help capital markets to grow. Second is the non-bank financial instruments. Um, for uh, startups and the technology is easier to access finance than the, I would say, startups in the classical sectors. Uh, yet, I think both of them face the issue when they scale up because there is a limited number of uh, private equity funds active uh, and ready to grow uh, those companies. And I think 
there is additional work to be done on that dimension. Uh, the second dimension that is uh, very important is technology. I think we, uh, we are not yet at what the level of um, analytics on that and how technology is going to change both how we finance and how companies work. And the last point, among many other points, is on the green. Those both regions uh, are in charge of exporting around 40 to 45 percent of oil and gas globally. And therefore, we need, they need to take into consideration in a more serious way how um, those topics are being handled. The green economy, sometimes also issues related to green taxation, how to graduate from an oil and gas or resource-rich activities to a world where energy would be created uh, in a different ways. And this is an area where uh, we at the fund, uh, we are currently uh, starting our thinking. And those are two long-term trends that we need to understand for those regions. One is how technology is going to change the role of the private sector, the way economies are managed, the way governance is taking place, the way we can integrate, and this is part of our strategy, and include those who are currently less included, women and youth, uh, how countries should uh, uh, start the transformation now uh, for the day when um, economies or, or energy will be created uh, without uh, big use of fossil fuel and gas, and three, how uh, we can build, uh, 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 I would say, the capacity at the decision-making level to understand the connectivity between policies. I think one of the main issues we are facing is the fact that policies are segmented and there is no feedback loop. Is try, test, assess, and then improve. And this is something that hopefully this study helped with, is to understand that there is always a need to integrate and also to assess uh, how policies are affecting uh, economies and the life of people. Thank you very much. I think this is a very nice closing word, emphasizing uh, uh, capacity building and, and, and governance uh, and institutional issues. So we are seven minutes over time. I apologize, but I think that a very exciting and interesting discussion. So I think this seven minute extra really worth. So I, my last story is just to thank uh, the four speakers and, and for all of you for being here, participating in this very interesting discussion. So let's applause and, and thank the speaker. Thank you.